So it's nice to be back in here. It's Israel. Um, the topic for tonight really is um, I think the title is Why Evil Persists. Yeah. <clears throat> Which really is also when you, when, when, you, when you say why does evil persist, what it also means is that. Um, why does redemption take so long? Because that's really the opposite idea, you know. And uh, everybody tries to figure that out. Like, why does it take so long for the gula, the redemption to occur? Why do things have to be so bad, you know, and, and so on, you know? Um, so I, that's what I want to talk about. <clears throat> I had a, however, uh, in all, uh, I have to admit that I really had a conflict because there's so much stuff happening in the world that I had this tremendous Yetzirah to talk about current events tonight you know uh, because this is uh, I mean when you think about all the stuff going on there's Brexit there's Iran there's Soleimani there's China there's the elections the elections in uh, in Israel then there's the impeachment right and then there's the peace plan it's like wherever you look there's just something going on and uh, to most people it just you know people are, of course are, are astonished that this is all going on and the real question of course is does it all fit in the messianic process and the answer is of course so the question of course is how <clears throat> and why and so on you know uh, so I was conflicted in that sense you know but uh, so maybe a little later after I speak about this, maybe I can speak about uh, some other things, you know. Um, in any case, what is the truth really in terms of things that um, go on that are, that's really bad? There's a concept of the darkness at the end. And that's really what we're in. As you get closer to the Mashiach, it gets darker. It does, it really does, you know. Uh, in fact, in the um, uh, second Pasuk in Bratius, it already warns you that before the redemption comes, it's going to get really dark. And it says there, it says, um, and the earth was filled with uh, was uh, unformed and void and darkness was on the face of the deep it was this, probably this incredible deep waters ocean and uh, there was darkness and the spirit of God hovered on the face of the deep that's what it says in the second Pesach of Precious. so there's a uh, a Balaturim, one of the great commentaries of the Chumash, who wrote the Turim. It says, uh, wow, what a difference. 
and the Spirit of God, Ruach Lokim, hovers over the face of the deep. You see, what does that mean? It means that the Spirit of God hovers in the midst of the darkness because there was chushach, darkness, you see. Uh, and uh, the Spirit of God hovers over the waters but in the midst of darkness. And then it says, And God said, let there be light. Now what that means, obviously, is that this was a, a uh, shock. It means there's incredible darkness and God is hovering in this darkness, which means obviously that he's concealed. And all of a sudden, God says, let there be light, and all of a sudden, he's revealed out of nowhere. So what do we see? We obviously immediately recognize that when it says that God said, let there be light, that light is the messianic light. See, O Mashiach, that's the messianic light, which means that God, in a certain sense, will be visible at the end. But before that happens, he will be invisible because the earth will be filled with darkness. That's what it says, you see. In fact, the Balaturim notes that the Gematria, when it says, so the Balaturim notes uh, that the Gematria of the Spirit of God hovers so he gives this uh, equivalency. Zuhi Ruchoi Shomelech HaMoshiach. I don't know how in the world he came up with that, but it's uh, incredible. Uh, Zuhi, this is, Zuhi Ruchoi, this is the spirit of the King Messiah. That is the gematria of Veruach Lekim Rachefes. And the spirit of God hovers over the face of the earth. So what he's really saying is that even though it's the spirit of God, but the one who's the chariot of that, the one who brings God in, is the Messiah, is the Mashiach. And therefore the gematri of Mashiach is equivalent to the Spirit of God hovering. Because that's the vehicle that brings God in. So automatically you see, it's a second Pasuk in Bratius. Automatically the Torah is telling you that before the Mashiach comes, it's going to be incredibly dark. That's what it says. So you begin to ask yourself, <clears throat> why is it dark? Now what does darkness mean? You have to understand, it doesn't mean a physical absence of light. I mean, that's the, what the words mean. But really it's a metaphor. What's the metaphor? Because when God says, let there be light, what that light means is that let the spirit, the being of God, be revealed. Which is the greatest goodness of all. And that God is a source of all what's called hatova, all goodness, you know, morale, however you want to conceive of goodness. Morality, you know, ethics, you know, chesed, kindness, uh, ple pleasure, and, and so on, security. It's a great time. That's what goodness is, right? That's what the light of God will bring. In fact, that's what the Or Mashiach is. Will dwell with the Lamb, the famous uh, Novi prophet that says these things. There will be tremendous peace, no conflict, no hatred, and so on. <clears throat> what darkness therefore means, the opposite of that, is that the world will contain an enormous amount of evil. Pretty bad stuff. Evil, not only evil, <clears throat> but tremendous amount of immorality, 
hashkoso, corruption, you know. And the truth is, when you look around, you see that evil. I mean, you know, for just the concept of what's happening in America, you know, how they're what's called trumping up charges against Trump, right? Everybody sees there's no case. It's a classic case of an incredible abuse of power, not by Trump, but by the Democrats. It's, uh, you know, it's purely partisan and so on, you know. But in any case, uh, so we, we see tremendous evil in all its manifestations, you see. But there's something else that is also indicated in evil. It means in order for evil to flourish, the good must be subdued. That's what it means. It means before the Mashiach comes, there will be people who are deserving of great things, good things. You know, in terms of whatever you call good. And they're finished. They're going to have sorrows one after the other. They're going to have problems, difficulties, bankruptcies, divorces, sicknesses. You name it. Whatever is in your vocabulary of bad, this will be visited on good people. In fact, the Ramchal, Ramon says that these people are stunned. Like, why is this happening to me? And not only that, they can't change it. And I will talk about that. But uh, what I'm trying to focus on is that evil is much greater than you think. It's not merely the proliferation and the success of evil, but it is the denial and the subduing of good people. Tzadikim, you see. That's also what it means. So the question, of course, is why would that be so? What is it? <coughs> Because obviously it's completely contrary to justice. We know God is his ultimate dionemis, his ultimate epitaph is that he's a God of justice, the true judge. When you take a look around, you say, well, what have happened to justice? So that's a very important idea. Like I say, that's already alluded to in Bracious, that this is gonna happen. Now, there's another place also which I'd like to bring out which for us has very important lessons. And that's Avroma Vino. It's a very interesting way of looking at Avroma Vino. Imagine, he's 75 years old, and even in the Torah's time, that's an old man. You know, maybe he had more energy at 75. I mean, the man lived to 180, and so on, you know. But he's still 75, you know. 65, you can, let, you can collect uh, Medicare, whatever, Social Security, or whatever, you know. Whatever goodies the uh, government has for you, right? And so on, you know? Uh, so he's an old man, and he lives in Horan. You know, he came from uh, Ur-Kazdam, or of the Chaldees. And now he's living in Horan, you know, and so on. All of a sudden, 75 years old, he gets a message. What's the message? God appears to him and says, Lech Lecho, the famous statement, you know, get thee out from Horan and go to the land that I will show you. Now let's think about that, you know? He's an old man, right? You know, the older you get, you don't travel. So the fact that he's old already is difficult for him. Second thing, he's got to travel? You know, traveling is not for old people, really. I mean, today maybe it's a little easier, you know, because you go on a tour, they put you on a bus, you know, so you get to sit with the other old people, whatever, seniors and so on, you know. But traveling in and of itself is not conducive to a certain a person who's older. It's really more for the young, you know. So that's a second difficulty that Avram has to face. Not only is he old, he's about to travel somewhere. 
you see. Now the third difficulty for him is, wait a minute, Avram Avinu has a whole support system in Haran, right? He's got his family, right? That's where they live. You know, his father, if he was alive then, or his mother or whatever and so on, you know? He's got, I'm sure he's got cousins and brothers, uh, not cousins and, and of course he has brothers and so on, you know? It's a whole support system. So he's now asked to leave his support system and go, and, and, and go away. That's very hard. It's the equivalent of somebody, you know, who has a whole family in America and moves there to Israel without any support system. You know, it's very hard for people who do that, you know? The fact that they do that is amazing, and so on. Because in the end, you need a support system, especially to go through life, the vicissitudes of life, and so on, you know? So that's the third problem that Avram Avinu has. The fourth problem, right, is he has no idea where he's going. God says to the land I will show you, show me. Like, what does that mean? Am I headed to China? Where am I headed for, you know? And that automatically creates anxiety. You know, when you're on a bus and you don't know where the bus driver is going, you are anxious, you know, <clears throat> uh, because obviously, you know, everybody wants to know the destination. So imagine right then and there, Avram Avinu has four problems of which he has to overcome. That's what we're talking about here, right? These are the Nisyanis, you know. And even though it's God talking to him, you know, okay, but still, you're human. This is how you react, right? So what does he do? He picks himself up with his whole family. And he wasn't a wealthy man at that time, really. That's why God said, he had to promise him, I will, I will make your name, uh, as Rashi says, you know, when you travel, you can't make any money, you're too busy traveling, right? Not only that, your reputation suffers as a result, because they don't know uh, who you are from where you're going and so on, you know? And uh, so therefore, however, he decides to leave comes to Eretz Yisrael, right? And all of a sudden, Eretz Yisrael is in the midst of a famine. That's one of the greatest famines in the world history. And remember, this was the land that God was going to give him, you know. All of a sudden, it comes to a land that is an incredible famine. To such an extent, right? He's got to go somewhere else. He can't stay in Eretz Yisrael. So that's a fifth, that's a fifth Nisoyan temptation or test that he's got to suffer through. So where's he gonna go? Okay, you know. He goes to Egypt. Now Egypt is an incredibly immoral place. For somebody like Avram Avino, who's a tzaddik, he's gotta go to Egypt? It's like somebody saying to somebody, you know, he wants to move where? He's gonna move to Manhattan, right? 42nd Street, right? Next to all the you-know-what, you know? And imagine telling that to a tzaddik, you got to live in, in uh, Times Square, you know, with all the immorality going around and all the, the hype and so on and so forth. Excuse me, you know, what are you, what, what, what's he doing there? Yet he has to go to Egypt, right? So that's a fifth, uh, a, a sixth Nisoyen. Um, so he goes to Egypt and all of a sudden he encounters, of course, a seventh Nisoyen, right? What's a seventh Nisoyen, right? Is that he tells Sora, listen, they're gonna kill me. If I say that you, I'm your husband, it's over. Because Egypt is a very immoral place, obviously, and they're always looking for good opportunities for, in terms of women and so on. So he realized that. He says, he looks at his wife and says, you know, you're, you're a beautiful woman. Guess what? You know, I'm dead if I say that you're my wife. 
So he says to Sarah, you got to say, you're my sister, right? And so on, and they'll allow me to live. That's a terrible insane. Remember, Abraham Avinu is an incredible tzaddik. He's got to lie. You know, you know, maybe for lying for some people is not that, e not that hard. But for somebody who's a tzaddik, at the caliber of Avram Avinu, you don't lie, you see? So he's got to fake it, as they say, right? Such an incredible Nisoyen for Avram Avinu, you see? So what happens? Gets to Egypt, and guess what? They take his wife. Now, lest you think, well, they take his wife, and, we, and obviously, it's obviously what they want to do with her, right? Use her for whatever, and so on, right? Could you imagine he now has to allow his wife to be taken by other men? Can you imagine what he feels? This is his wife. And all of a sudden, other people, other men are now going to take Sarah and be with her. Right? It's incredible. So, and, you know, so you say, okay, at least he's going to get her back. But he's never going to see Sarah again. People don't realize that. He, she was taken by Pharaoh. A concubine of Pharaoh can no longer go back to a commoner. That's it. Once you're the consort of a king, certainly Pharaoh considered himself to be a god, that woman can no longer marry a commoner. So it comes out that she can no longer go back to Avram Avinu. That's assuming she can get out of the house, escape the palace, which obviously is a very big assumption, and so on. But it's a crime for her to go back to her husband. Of course, they think it's a brother. But in reality, of course, it's Sarah is the wife. And she cannot ever see Avram Avino again. You see? Could you imagine? So, just picture this. So we have all these Nisiones. We have Avram Avino, And he's sitting in a motel in Egypt. Broke. No wife. He's broke. No support system. Right? In a land which is completely immoral. Right? Now... This was after God promised him everything. What did he say to himself? He probably said, I can't believe I'm in this place, this hotel. In fact, I cannot believe this is happening to me. Because it is the exact opposite of everything that God said. So how could this be? You know, I'm dramatizing it because that's exactly what Avraham Avinu must have felt. Everything was lehepach of what God said. So what was he supposed to do, really? He has no resources, no money. He'll never see his wife again. And he's in the middle of nowhere, Egypt. He can't go back to Horan and, and you know, forget about everything. You know, so it's, you talk about bleak. That's what Avraham Avinu was facing. Now the question is, why did God do that to him? You know, how do you want to give the guy a couple of hardships? But what, he, what the Rebbe did to Avraham Avinu is he utterly destroyed him. Because that is the destruction of a man. Everything he knew, had, whatever. And he was stuck in the middle of Egypt. Why did God do this? Because the Rebbe was telling him something. And he had to learn this lesson. What was it? <clears throat> what the Rebbe was saying to him... <clears throat> You think because I told you to go, which means that you and your descendants will do the tikkun, will rectify creation. You think you're going to have a bed of roses? What do you think? It's going to be dinner every night at the Waldorf? Is that what you think? <clears throat> no. 
Forget about the Waldorf, right? You're not even going to be in Motel 6. For those people who know what Motel 6, we'll leave the light on for you, right? He probably wasn't even in that because he couldn't even afford Motel 6, right? That's what's going to happen to you. Uh, because the tikkun, in order to do the tikkun, you are going to you are going to have to go through terrible moments. Sometimes it'll be good, but who knows how many times it'll be dark. Not only dark, right? You'll you'll feel as if there is no Yeshua. You're doomed. That's what's going to happen. You see. Now we know, of course. We know, of course, what happened. It's abortion, you know, he, uh, God took over and he closed every single orifice of that palace. So obviously they were all going to die within three days. So Para got the message, what's the problem here? He realized, Sara, and he came running back to, to Avram Avino. Uh, so that was the second lesson. That your situation is going to be so dire that only God can save you. Because the Bosham didn't even use a natural way. You know, God could have arranged a natural way where some guy would have said, you know, well, maybe Paro lost interest in Sarah, right? Or, and so on, you know, and then he said, okay, take her back and all this. There are natural ways that it could have been solved. So the second thing that the Bonsham said to Avram, the first thing was what? You think it's going to be a bed of roses? No. Like I said, it's not going to be dinner at the Waldorf every night. You're going to have to go to Gehenna unbelievable darkness and the, the depth of the darkness will be that you're done for and he was Alpiteva, Avramavinu was done for you know it's not like he can call the police who's going to call them against Paroi he is the police he is the ultimate authority he was finished you see so the Tsaurus that you're going to have being a Masakin is that you're going to be finished many times not only that the only one who can help you is God. That's how bad off you'll be. And therefore, you must have bitochen. The job of somebody who does tikkun must have bitochen. No matter how bad it gets, no matter what happens, no matter how dire the circumstances are, you need to know that you are now in an agreement with God and I will rescue you. Don't worry, I can do it. But that's the future of what being a Jew is. Because it's not just Avram Avino. This is the concept called Maisa over Simona Bonham, which Ramban says, that whatever happened to the patriarchs is destined to happen to the Jewish people. It's called the forerunners. They are the forerunners of the Jewish people. And there's reasons for that. And so on, because they had to exercise certain what's called uh, spiritual necessities and we the Jewish people have to exercise the same spiritual necessities but basically the Russian was saying to Avram Avinu you must have bitochen that's what a masakin somebody does tikkun has to have very important lesson it was taught to Avram Avinu in a very severe way obviously you know <clears throat> but that's a very important thing but the second thing is also interesting, you see. Because what the Rebbe was telling him is that your situation is the situation before the Mashiach comes. If you want to understand what the Choshech is, the darkness, this is the darkness. This, the darkness before Mashiach comes, 
or as we say at the end of time, right? This is what it looks like when you're absolutely finished. And I'm sure when you think about that, just think about the Holocaust, which they just commemorated. Auschwitz, 75 years of deliberation. Those people who went to Auschwitz, right? That's exactly what they thought. That there is no power on earth that can stop us. You see? And that really the Jewish people are dead. They're finished. Yet we see, of course, 75 years later, what happens? The Jewish people flourish. Only God can pull that off. You know, you cannot kill six million people and expect them to resuscitate. Doesn't work that way, you see. And that's what the Bershom wanted to tell Avraham Avinu. This is what it looks like at the end. So there you are. We have a very vivid, dramatic story of what the Jews will go through, you see. So the question is, of course, is, you know, what does this mean? Why does it have to happen? And, and of course, we know it does happen. This is exactly what the last hundred years of Judaism has been. Whether it has been under the communists, and they butchered the Jews, under the Germans, and the anti-Semitism doesn't go away, it persists. The Jews are always, you know, they're always persecuted, and so on. It never stops. So the question is, what does all this mean? <clears throat> Where do we see all this, also, that happen? The Russian appears to Moshe Rabbeinu in the Sneh, which is, of course, the burning bush. And, of course, he says to him, go and take my people out. And that's pivotal. Because Moshe Rabbeinu is the Mashiach, Ben Yosef. It's really who he is. And what the Bansham was telling him is that your exile is over. Because Moshe Rabbeinu was gone, he had not seen a Jew in 54 years. He ran away, how old was he? He was 26 years old. There's a Machlekes, how old he was. But the, I think the Ramban says he was 26 years old, and the snare, the burning bush happened when he was 80. That's 54 years. That's a long time. Now remember, in those days, all the Jews were in Egypt, right? It wasn't like today where they're spread all over the planet, right? They were in Egypt. But Moshe Rabbeinu was not in Egypt. <coughs> Do you imagine a guy doesn't see a Jew for 54 years? No minion, no Amen, right? Nothing. You know, I don't even know how he got his coat. Well, there was no thing as kosher yet, obviously, because the Torah was not given yet. But could you imagine not seeing a Jewish person? Forget about his father and his mother and his uncles and, you know, everybody else. They were all in Egypt. And he's somewhere wandering around Ethiopia, you know. And that whole life was very interesting for him. He became a general, a king of Ethiopia. There's a whole medrash on what he was doing there, you know. But essentially, Moshe Rabbeinu was in Golis. He was in exile. Now that is part of the Yisurim, the suffering of the Mashiach ben Yosef. That's why he was in exile for 54 years. Because that really is part of the suffering of the Mashiach. In any case, <clears throat> so the Bansham tells him, you have to go and take my people out. And then all of a sudden, this is Shemais, the Bansham says to him, and I will t you will tell Parai to let my firstborn go, and of course he will say no, and therefore you will tell him that I will kill your firstborn, all of them. 
<coughs> which is one of the greatest pandemics ever known. How you can kill every firstborn, you know, inside of one night. That's what the Bereshim did. The only time, uh, the only, uh, uh, which is interesting as an aside, the only equivalent to that, maybe, which not really, is the Chizkiyo, uh, when he was uh, surrounded by Sancherev, the army, you know, and uh, they were gonna, uh, they were gonna take Jerusalem, and who knows how many Jews they were gonna kill. Sancherev, you know. And uh, it's amazing, Chizkiyo was an incredible tzaddik. He just, you know, he prayed, and he, he went to bed, he went to sleep that night, because the next morning, they were going to attack. Of course, they got up in the morning, and everyone was dead. There was 183,000 soldiers dead. Now that is an impossibility. You know, there is no disease in the world that can take out 183,000 people in one night. It's impossible. So that's sort of like Marcus Becheris, you know, in, in a more modern Eifel, and so on. Too bad, because Chizkiyo, uh, at that point in time, should have sang Shira. Yoshia, because it was such an unbelievable miracle. In fact, he was supposed to be Mashiach. But since he did not sing Shira, it passed. He was not Mashiach. It's interesting, you know. But in any case, <clears throat> uh, so the Bashim says to uh, Moshe Rabbeinu, take the Jews out. Fine. And, uh, and like I said, then the Bashim tells him, and you're going to tell Parah that if you don't let my firstborn out, I will kill them all. I will kill your firstborn. So the Orachayim, says, he asks a question, he says, why is Rabbi Hashem telling this Moshe Rabbeinu that I will kill, the last Maka will be, I will kill the firstborn? Why does he tell it to him at the time when, you know, Para will deserve that the firstborn will be killed? Whenever that happened, and that happened, by the way, a year later. Why tell him now? So the Orachim says something very interesting. What does he say? He says, because Moshe Rabbeinu would have gotten absolutely disgusted. Do you know how many times Pari told him no? Ten times. Could you imagine a man who knows he's Mashiach, who's talked to God, right? Comes to Pari, so you figure, of course, I'm the Messiah, Mashiach. Of course Pari's going to let them go. Pari says, no, who are you? Who's God? Then Moshe Rabbeinu performs the miracle of the snake. Doesn't make a difference. Then you have Dam, Tzfadea, Kinum. I mean, it's unbelievable. This guy, Paroi, says no, no, no. You know? Now, a normal guy, right? And not only that, uh, not only that when, when after he did the miracle with the snakes and so on, Paroi said something incredible. He said, well, you guys are lazy. Right? You know what I'm going to do? You've got to gather your own straw. That's what he tells Moshe Rabbeinu. So the Jews went crazy. Slavery was difficult enough in Egypt, you see. But now they got it, had to gather their own straw to build bricks, to make bricks. That means they didn't sleep. They would have to do it at night, gather the, the straw, and then make the bricks in the daytime, you see. And that was an unbelievable suffering that the Jews had. Imagine you can't sleep. So what did Moshe Rabbeinu do? He went running back to the Bunshlam, as we know from the end of Shemais, right? And he says, what is this? You know, you have not redeemed them, and what did you send me for? If, that, if your intent is not to redeem them, because obviously that's what's happening, because it got much worse. 
So then why do you send me? I mean, what's going on here? So we see that the Urchayim was right. Kamosh Rabbeinu got disgusted. So what is this? You know, I got to now run back. You know, the whole thing fell apart. Yeah, I know you made me the Mashiach. What's going on here? You see, of course, the real question is, wait a minute. If Moshe Rabbeinu knew that the end Makkah would be Makkah's Becheres, well, that didn't happen yet. So why was Moshe Rabbeinu disgusted? There was no Makkah's Becheres yet. And the idea is, because Moshe Rabbeinu felt, okay, even if there's resistance, but all it means is that the slavery will continue. But it got much worse. Moshe Rabbeinu did not anticipate that it would get much worse. You see, that's why he came running back to the Baruch Shalom and said, why did you send me? You see, but what do we see? We see really what you begin to think of as an amazing idea. That even, in, even when the redemption is at hand, it doesn't work. That's what we see. It doesn't work. We talk about the Geula. This was the redemption. There's no if, buts, or and. This is the redemption, you see? And it still didn't work. Pyre resisted it 10 different times. Of course, in the end, he gave in, because after all, the greatest threat is death. And Moshe Rabbeinu killed the, the Rebunshim killed the whole Egypt, all the firstborn, of course. Then he drove them out of Egypt, of course, you know. <clears throat> but this is the darkness. The darkness does not end, even though Moshe Rabbeinu is assigned to go to Egypt doesn't end, you see, which is astounding. That's you have to ask yourself. This makes no sense. <clears throat> that even in the midst of a redemption, when the Mashiach has been designated and told that he's Messiah, and actually told to take the Jews out, which is the Gaula, still doesn't end. It's still darkness. Could you imagine how much Rabbeinu felt every time Paris said no? Could you imagine all the Jews in Egypt waiting? Because they all knew what was going on, right? Because the slavery stopped as soon as there was a dam. They all of a sudden, the Egyptians forgot, you know, just uh, left off the slavery and so on, you know? So all the Jews are waiting there with bated breath. Oh, now he's going to let us out. Now he's going to, right? <clears throat> and this continued for one year. Imagine that. So, of course, everybody's questioning what's going on, right? Oh, so that again we see that the darkness will proceed or persist even though the Mashiach turns up. Talk about darkness, you see. So, the question is, why is this? Why does the evil proceed, especially in the redemption itself? So, if you think that redemption is happening, yeah, it'll happen. But don't think it's going to go with beautiful smoothness. It doesn't work that way, you see. And that's why it has fits and starts, you see. In fact, the way the Geula happens, it's two steps forward, one step back. But there's always a step back. How do we understand that? Well, there are certain things that are very important to understand why the Rebbeinah does this. And that's what I wanted to bring out. First idea. <clears throat> we know that in the Makkah of darkness, 80% of the Jews died. We learned that from the word Chamushim, 
when it says in Frank that this Bishalach. It says Vhamushim Olu Mitzrayim, right? So Khamushim normally means armed, right? But Rashi says it's Khamishim, which means one fifth left. That means four fifths died in Egypt. And they died during the plague of darkness, so the Egyptians should see shouldn't see that the Jews were dying also. And then they'll really never let the Jews out. So imagine in the days of darkness, the Jews died and they were all buried within three days or whatever. You see? Now the question is, why is that? Why did God take away 80% of the Jews? Now don't worry about them, they came back to Gilgulam. You know, even though a Jew dies, that, that doesn't mean the end of the test. He comes back to do his tikkun in another life. You know, God's got plenty of time according to his, you know, how he can bring everybody back, whatever. But the question is why? And the answer to that is because 80% didn't want to leave Egypt. They wanted to stay, which is interesting. What do you mean stay? You're slaves in this country, right? For hundreds of years, and you don't want to leave, and so on. Because here was the problem. The problem is this. <clears throat> It's not that the Jews were not thankful that they were freed from slavery. They were. You see, they're no more slaves. But they said like this, it's true we're no longer slaves, so why can't we live in Egypt as free men? We don't have to go into the desert. I mean, imagine going into a wilderness, there's no food there, there's nothing there. There's no water, there's no food, there's no civilization, right? So why are we going there? We'd rather stay in Egypt as free men. And they were free. I mean, the Egyptians were so petrified of the Jews that obviously they would never enslave them again. So they said, hey, listen, you know, we're in Egypt. We really had a great time in a certain sense. We had, we had aftiach, we had cucumbers, whatever they, you know, well, what? Leeks. I mean, I, I, I understand what that means. I can understand they said we had duck, we had steaks. I can understand that, you know, but this, cucumbers and, and aftiach and watermelons, uh, anyway, I just don't somehow relate to that. But anyway. Free fish. Uh, free fish. Free fish, whatever, and so on, you know. Uh, but the interesting thing about it is that, you know, what they wanted to do simply is, of course they wanted, of course they wanted to be righteous and so on. But why do we have to leave Egypt? Go into a wilderness, you see. That's really what they wanted, you know. And, uh, of course, uh, the Bonsham said, no. You cannot remain in Egypt as a free man. You must leave Egypt. You must cast Egypt aside. You have to embark on a new life, obviously. I want to give you the Torah, and then you will become a spiritual nation. You will become my nation that is engaged in spirituality. That's what you have to do. You There's no such thing as a, a middle course here where you can stay in Egypt, free men, you know, and have your cucumbers and all that kind of stuff, you see? Now, what was the problem? It's very important, in, uh, there's a very important idea that comes out of this. What is that idea? Um, life is inherently unstable. It's unpredictable. If you really think about that. It's risky. We all know that. One day you could be here, the next day you're gone. One day you could have money, the next day you're bankrupt. You see, one day you're healthy, the next day you're in the hospital. Does anybody know? Guy gets up in the morning at 10 a.m., 
right? And he's got a great business deal to do, right? And by the time it's six o'clock, he has a massive heart attack, and he's now being sent to the morgue, or wherever they take, right? Nobody knows life, what happens. Life is a very risky situation, and we can all testify to that, you see? So this is the problem. So as a result of that, how does man solve that? What a man therefore wants, mankind wants, man, right, is, is stability, predictability. That's what everybody wants, you see? That's why everybody has bank accounts where they save money, you know, for emergency, whatever happens. People need predictability, they need stability, you see? So what's interesting is this, is that the Jews in Egypt, right, they were free, which was incredible. So what does God want? Wants to take me out into a wilderness? In the middle of nowhere? Right? All of a sudden, the fear of instability kicks in. That's what it is. You know, it's interesting, even if people are in a situation which is bad, mankind can adjust to that. They can adjust. We have the ability to adjust the flexibility, even in a bad situation. In fact, mankind would rather remain in a bad situation in which they've adjusted to than go into a new place where they have no idea how to fulfill their needs. Because the need to be secure, safe, and have your needs met is extremely strong. And you'd, you'd remain in a bad situation if you've adjusted to it but not to go into a new situation, an unknown. People avoid the unknown because it's frightening. It's anxiety provoking. So that's what they felt. There's a look, you know, we're very glad that we're no longer slaves, gewaldig, as they say, you know? But what do you want to do? You want to take us to a wilderness? We don't know what's out there and so on, you know? Of course, what they should have had was betochen. Because why would God do that? Why would God save them from Egypt with unbelievable miracles and then kill them off in the desert? Which is interesting because that's almost what God did. He almost did kill them off in the desert. You know, maybe they said to themselves, who knows, maybe we'll sin and God will kill us off in the desert, or whatever. But the main idea is they should have betochem. If God could do this to Egypt, then God certainly can do what? He can certainly take us to a wilderness and feed us. Which, of course, is exactly what he did. But they didn't. They did not have bitochem. And because they did not trust God, which means that they said that it's very possible that God cannot allow us to survive in the desert, right? And therefore, what will happen? They will die. So God said, okay, if you feel I can't do it, that you will die in the desert, guess what? You will die in Egypt. Mida keneged mida, measure for measure. If you lack the trust that I can do this, then that itself obligates you to die. Because what you're really saying is that I cannot save you, you see. But the important thing that we have to remember, right, is because the redemption model of Egypt, it happened so fast. So because it happened so fast, people resisted. People resisted the redemption itself. The Jews resisted redemption. Leave Egypt, go out of it. You see, why? Because of the fear of the unknown. That's how strong it is, you see. That's a very, very important idea. 
don't rush it. Even the Geula. Because what will happen? People, it's an unknown. You know, all of a sudden, leave here and go somewhere else. People get very uh, risky, you know, very uh, shaky when you tell them you got to move out and move to some other country or whatever. <clears throat> you see? But in Egypt, it was very quick, even though it took a year. But finally, when they were asked to leave, and they knew they were going to leave, leave where? Into the desert? All of a sudden, the resistance, the desire to maintain stability kicked in. And they said, no, we want to stay here and eat our cucumbers and watermelons or whatever and so on. You see? And this was the problem in Egypt. And that is one of the answers why the Rebansham does it slow. Because he doesn't want a repeat performance of Egypt. You see? He doesn't want people to get frightened and say, what do you mean? I gotta live in America, I'm living in America, I gotta leave America, right? Right? I'm comfortable, I have a great apartment in, you know, I got a great apartment in America, right? Wherever you are in Europe and so on, so, you know, I'm doing great, I get a pension, whatever and so on, you know? I have a great business, I'm making a, a nice living and so on. You want me to leave this and go to where? Some country, Eretz Israel? You know what the economy in Eretz Israel is like? The cost of living and all that and so on, you know? Uh, so people will resist. This is the problem. Therefore, it has to go slow to adjust. You know, it's like the, they say, you know, uh, Yanka was speaking to his wife, Sora, and he was saying, you know, we got a big problem. So Sora said to him, what's the problem? So he, he said, listen, we have a lot of, well, we have a lot of real estate. We have a lot of money in the bank. It's Gewaldig, you know? And all of a sudden, the Mashiach is going to come, right? And we'll have to leave. Leave all our wealth. Beautiful apartment, business, social contacts, right? We have a great life. And I'm really worried. So Sora looks at him, his wife, and says, what are you talking about? You know? What are you talking about? You know? God saved the Jews from Parai. He's going to save us from Mashiach. <laughs> you see yeah that's true that's what many people will say if the Rebbe ever appeared in America and said excuse me it's time to leave you know how much resistance you would see but in America or the, you know the uh, America millions of Jews five six million Jews you'd see the, the resistance from uh, uh, Europe and so on written because basically they have good lives so therefore, you, the gula cannot go so fast. It's got to go slow. You see, whereas God is now taking care of all the nations, which is really what's happening, He is now, it's called, you know, recompense. It's now called retribution. It's called comeuppance in messianic language, you know, and so on. He has to do it very slow, very slow. So people get used to the fact that the world is changing. You see? He can't abruptly change the world because everybody's going to get nervous because everybody needs to see stability and nobody wants to change even if it's a redemption and we see that from Egypt you see <clears throat> so that's a very important idea that is why redemption proceeds very slowly it's a very important idea and this is exactly what happened in Egypt now <clears throat> But why is it dark at the end? And so on. 
What happens? Because here's the problem. When the Geula comes, it's a definite time. But the problem is, that doesn't mean the Tikkun is complete. You see, even Egypt, when you think about that, Egypt is a very important model for the end. What happened in Egypt is exactly what's going to happen now. The problem in Egypt, what was the problem with Mitzrayim? And of course, who was bringing this problem? The Sultan, the great prosecuting angel. He said, wait a minute, you can't take these people out, right? Because they still have 190 years to go. There's 210 years, but you said, Arba Meyashana, 400 years. You want to take them now after 210? There's another 190 years to go. This was the Kitrug. You see? So the Rabbonish sort of had that problem. The Sultan was correct in his Cheshvan. That's the problem. So what did the Rabbonisham do? He had to accelerate the suffering of 400 years. And that's what he did. When Parai said, let them gather straw, you see, what Paro was really doing is exacerbating, intensifying the suffering which brought them to the total amount of suffering required for 400 years. Now Moshe Rabbeinu did not know that, you see, but what the Rabbanisham did is he made it bad, evil. All of a sudden it got much worse for the Jews, much worse. Imagine not being able to sleep, right? Can't sleep, it's ridiculous, right? Because you've got to be up all night gathering straw. It was half, it was a, a, it's almost like a death sentence, you know? But the Rabbanisham had to do it, why? Because the Asurin, or without going into why they had to suffer that way, it requires 400 years of that type of treatment. But only 210 had to happen. And the Sutton was screaming, you can't let them out. They don't deserve to get out yet. So the Bosham had to solve the problem of justice. Because the Sutton argues for justice. As bad as it sounds, that's what he argues, you see. And therefore the Bosham had to address justice. Sutton's right. So, of course, the Bosham said, if I allow them to stay longer, then they will descend into a level of tumor, darkness, which then I won't be able to take them out, whatever. So I have to solve the problem. So he solved it by putting in the mind of Paroi, Pharaoh, hey, right? They will now suffer, they have now have to gather the straw. So it's amazing. In a short amount of time, they suffered another 190 years in that short amount of time, you see. But that shows you something. That's the model of Gula. That's the same thing that's going to happen. God is going to want to take everybody out, the Jews, and redeem the Jews. Because we notice that the world is getting worse. The moral decay on this planet is beyond belief. I, mean, I don't want to, what, what, what happens in America? You know, the immorality, the homosexuality. I mean, uh, what people tell me what's going on there, it's just hard to believe. And then you have the entire world, enormous amount part of the world is evil, bad. I mean, you look at China. China has 1.4 billion people, and they all live in fear, basically, because it's a dictatorship. In fact, it's not even a dictatorship, basically. It's a tyranny. They could be killed, and who would, who would defend them? You see? So therefore, the, we, we have no idea of how much evil is committed every day in the world. So the Rebbe decides and says, enough is enough. I'm going I'm to redeem the Jews. 
bring the Mashiach. Ah, but what's the problem? Prosecution is the kid Well, all of a sudden, the Sutton says, wait a minute. Can't do that. Because the Tikkun is not complete. Just like in Egypt. The Tikkun, whatever the rectification was, wasn't complete. This is what he said. So the Sutton says the same thing now. So the Bonsham says, yes, and I have to respect judgment because the Bonsham is a dynamis. All of a sudden it gets worse. You see, it's called an acceleration of the necessity of the redemption. That, by the way, is one of the ideas or the answers to the Holocaust. The Holocaust was something that almost the world has never seen before. Of course people, of course nations kill people. There's always conquest. But generally speaking, when a nation like the Romans, for instance, when they took over another nation, conquest, right? They killed them in whatever wars and so on. But it was for tribute, for money. It's always about money. Because if you capture a nation, they gotta pay you tax. So one of the ways of producing income for the nation was to conquer other nations. This is always what went on. But nations never killed nations just because they are who they are. That doesn't make any sense. Nobody cares about who you are. The Romans didn't care about, you know, all the nations that they killed just to kill them. No, they wanted money, tribute. That's what it's all about. But the Holocaust was different. It was a deviation from the norm. They killed Jews, not because there was money there, although they did take the gold in their fillings and all that. Yeah, but that's not why they did this. Because they hated Jews. You see, they killed Jews because they were Jews with no crime on their hands, right? No guilt, nothing. That's a, that's a highly unusual uh, uh, event. It deviates from most of, from the mankind's history, you see. And not only that, you see, but if you think about it, when they took a Jew and they killed him, they burnt him, and then they took everything out of him. His fat became soap, you see. His bones became articles that you could use. His skin became lampshades. You ever hear anything like that? It's almost what you do to a cow, right? When you kill a cow, you don't just waste everything. The meat you eat, the skin becomes leather, the horns become whatever, you know, and so on. Every part of the cow is used. Yeah, but that's what you do to animals. You don't do that to humans. You see, you talk about butchery. Talk about the level of evil that the Nazis and so many other people in Europe, the Ukrainians and so on, did is beyond belief. The, a, a, a Jew to a, a Nazi to a German or whatever was, a, was less than a cow and they would use every bit of the guy's body. It's astounding, you know, not just the gold from his teeth, you see. Anything they could use, they took and they used it, you know. I remember I once, once um, I went to Auschwitz in 1995, the 50th anniversary, you know. It, w it was incredible to, to see that, uh, you know, and so on. You had the, uh, one room had all these suitcases, another room had all the wigs, the shoes. It was unbelievable, you know. Uh, you know, it's like, whatever the guy had, let's use it. You know, it's like, my, just like a cow. It's astounding. That type of evil you don't see, you know. So, what was the concept of the Holocaust really? The Holocaust is an accelerating device. Unfortunately, it required the death of six million people. 
But what that did is it brought, it, it was what's called balancing the book. We don't know the measure of tikkun or how much, the, or the measure of sins of the Jewish people. We don't know. Only God knows. But for whatever it is, he determined, and he knows the exact measure, that it requires a holocaust in order to bring the Jews up to a point where they can always be redeemed. That's what the holocaust was. And that's why there will never be another holocaust. Because it was already dealt with in that holocaust. But the holocaust was the equivalent in terms of its uh, necessity and in terms of what it did. It was the equivalent of what happened in Egypt when Paris said, let him go straw, let him do straw. Of course he wouldn't kill them because they were, they had, they were slaves of tremendous economic wealth. Right? But he subjected them to inhuman servitude. Obviously, it was inhuman, you see. Uh, so that's one of the ideas of the Holocaust, is that it was an accelerating device, even though we don't understand it. But God looks at the totality of history and what he had to do before he begins a messianic process, which in many ways begins from a Holocaust process. The same way he did in Egypt. Because the Sultan was saying, what do you mean? There is so many sins that have not been paid for that the Jews have done. Now we don't know what the measure is, but God knows what the measure is. And that's what really the Holocaust was. So therefore, that's one of the main reasons why the, it gets much darker by the Mashiach. Because in many ways the Jews are not up to it yet. And the Sultan is screaming, what's the story here? Can't let them out. You can't redeem the Jews. You can't give them Israel. Why do you think they got Israel right after the Holocaust? Because they, what's called, they filled up the books, the debt, and now they deserved Eretz Israel. It's not an accident why it happened right after the Holocaust. You see, because before the Holocaust, for whatever reason, they don't deserve Israel. And Eretz Israel, guess what? We know, is the beginning of the redemption. Of course. What's the question? You know, of course that downsides it too, because then it goes to the irreligious Jews and the heir of Rav and all that. But basically, it's the beginning of a gula. Jews have their land back. But that can only be had after a Holocaust. Now, we don't understand that. Because we have no idea what the debt that the Jews had and what they had to pay for. That will be revealed to us in the Messianic era. Every single thing that happens will be revealed at that time. But what I'm trying to show you is an equivalency of what the Holocaust was in terms of Egypt. And that's one of the reasons why it gets darker before the redemption. You see, because the Jews have to be what's called, they have to be brought up to speed, as I'm saying, you see. And therefore, unfortunately, this is what happened. It's a replication of what happened in Egypt. That's a main idea in terms of uh, why there's so much evil at the end. And remember, this is what Avraham Avinu experienced. Sitting there, finished, right? And the Rosh was saying, this is what it looks like in the end. Because God knows this is what's going to have to happen. So that's one idea. There's another idea which is also very important. What is that idea? It is the task of the Jewish people to bring 
the redemption, to do the tikkun. Tikkun means to bring God back into the universe. How? By doing the mitzvahs, by glorifying the name of God, worshipping Him, serving Him, right? And trying to spread this to mankind. That's what it's really all about, where the Jews are the agent that brings this to mankind, you see. What happens if they don't do it? So then God assigns somebody else, or He takes over. Because in the end, what God wants is to come out in the face of all humanity and show the world, Echad, I am one. There is no other power besides me. And everything that happens is basically my desire and my doing. If we don't do it, guess what? He's going to do it himself. Now, there's an interesting Rambam. One of the illustrations of this is the Rambam says that it's our job to promote the Echod, the oneness of God, the Yichod, right? That's what the Jewish job is. The Jews have to, in some way, serve as a model for this. But the Jews were not doing it. So the Rambam, the great Maimonides, says, since the Jews were not doing it, he gave it to another nation. That part. What nation is that? Christianity. There's a Rambam. It was Christianity in, in, in that respect only now promoted a religion that even though it's a trinity, obviously, you know, obviously they're like three better than one, but at least it's not paganism. Paganism can have 48 deities, you see? So the concept of a messiah or the concept of uh, a relative oneness, you see, or the concept of a redemption now became the mission of the Christians. It's amazing. Not that the Jews don't have this mission, but while they're not doing it, the Russian says, hey, I got to get out there. That's why all of a sudden, it's interesting, Christians, they're famous for their missionaries. They're all over the place. Why? Because in a certain sense, you know, the Russian is using them to promote, right, the singularity of God, basically, right, that there is a redemption, that there's an accountability, Right? There's reward and punishment. Right? And that's, of course, in their, uh, in their Christian um, uh, testament and so on, you know. Uh, so he gave it to the Christians, you see. This, in many ways, is what happens. Here's the idea. What is evil in the end? Evil is a belief that besides God, there's me. When you do an evil, what you're really doing is asserting being. You're asserting yourself. You're saying, hey, I can do whatever I want. I'm the guy that counts. Hey, you got something I like. Guess what? I steal it. It is a promotion of self above anything else. Hey, you're in my way. I kill you. That's what evil is. Evil is an assertion by an individual that he is supreme. And therefore, you're in my way. I will get you out of my way. You got stuff I like. I will take it. You see? Or I will cheat you. I will steal from you. And so on. In the end, that's what evil really is. It is an expression of the supreme ego of man. If you really want to think about that. And therefore the acts that a person does, of course, is very harmful. Destructive. <coughs> so what does the Bonsham do <coughs> in that sense? The Bonsham, in the end, must show that he is the only thing that is. That man is a zero, you see? That's what he wants to do. So if the Jews are doing it, great. 
then they'll do it for him. But if the Jews are not doing it, so what, what happens? You see, they're not doing it. That's one of the reasons why he gave it to Christianity. But in the end of time, how many Jews are gone? So they're not promoting the oneness of God at all. So what does the Bonshom do? So Bonshom says, I will do it myself. How? Okay. Now, imagine if you want to display your strength, right? And you, you know, you're a regular adult, right? And you got this five-year-old kid. You see? So you go and a five-year-old kid defies you. So give me something, whatever. So no, kid says no. So you walk over to the kid, you pick him up, you shake him. And the kid, of course, is frightened, right? And then you turn to a guy and say, you see how strong I am? I just shook this five-year-old kid. So the guy's gonna laugh, five-year-old kid. You call that strength? It's absurd, you see? But what happens if you go to over to Mr. Olympia? You ever see these guys? These, uh, you know, Mr. Universe contests, right? These guys have bulging muscles that are about 80, 80 inches around and so on, right? Right? And you go with this Miss Olympia, by the way, is the greatest. That's the supreme contest, you know? Miss um, Olympia, whatever, anyway. Uh, it's, a, it's a sport, but, you know. And imagine, you know, this Mr. Olympia, you know, he lifts 700 pounds of dead weight. It's incredible, right? And after the show and all that, you walk over guys. I said, maybe do me a favor and, uh, you know, uh, give me an autograph in this. And the guy says, hey, jump the light. I give you my autograph. And you walk over to Mr. Olympia and you lift him up. And you th throw him 50 feet. And then you turn to the guy and said, not bad, huh? That strength. Right? You just took the strongest guy in the world. You picked him up and you flung him 50 feet. That's the way to do it. You want to display strength? Don't pick on the five-year-old kid. Pick on Mr. Olympia. You see? Oh, so here's what happens. You get to the end of time, and the Jews are not doing it. They are not revealing the oneness of God. They are not revealing the might of God, the singularity, that he's the only thing that exists, and nothing happens unless he agrees to it. So what does God do? He doesn't want to overcome the, 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 the world with God, with the strength of God, which is infinite, right? Right? Because, big deal. You know? So what does he do? He makes the world strong. You see? He gives them unbelievable power. You see? Like uh, uh, Xi Jinping in China. This guy probably thinks he's king of the universe, you know? Or, or maybe the Democrats, you know, <laughs> whatever, right? You know, <clears throat> they think they're incredible, that they can do whatever they want. So what God does is he intensifies evil. So evil should become unbelievably strong. So when he comes messianically to wipe them out, that displays the might of God. That's why. It's a very important reason, you see, that when God has to do it, as they say, Nebuch by himself, that the Jews are just not doing it for him, you know, then his purpose becomes different, where he has to display his strength. But to do that adequately, uh, he has to lift evil out of its 
weakness and he has to make it unbelievably strong where these guys think they're the king of the universe that they are what he called um, just uh, they cannot be beaten you see and then he comes in and just wipes them out you see that's also why there's so much evil at the end because God is getting ready to demonstrate who he is so the greater the evil the greater is the demonstration of it's a very important idea but there is a bad side to that because if you want to increase the intensity and the success and the greatness of evil the two things you need to do the first thing you need to do is give success to evil people but the second thing you have to do is to diminish the success and the power of righteous people you see they always go hand in hand because it's what it's a scale you see so all of a sudden you live in a generation that this doesn't make any sense why do evil prosper and righteous fail and this happens all over how many people are righteous and so on you know and I don't mean they have to be at Sadegomo completely righteous and they have all kinds of problems you know you see problems you know bankruptcies and sicknesses and divorces all kinds and they don't know what's going on then you have people who want to learn Torah and they can't learn Torah they wander from yeshiva to yeshiva you know then you have people right who are successful they become a rashiva right in spirituality it's topsy-turvy nobody can figure out what's going on there are so many righteous people that do not deserve what's happening to them right and they are suffering terribly then there's so many evil people that it's incredible it's the life of Riley you see and the answer to that is because evil must grow in order for God to ultimately demonstrate his awesome power the problem is when it does grow there are two things that happen one is that evil prospers significantly you know and the second thing is where the good suffers and that was the ultimate question now nobody knows who is going to be the, the person that suffers nobody knows God has not revealed to anybody why does he pick one tzaddik who's incredibly successful right and another tzaddik he's in the life of misery nobody knows only God knows but I'm giving you the general formula the formula is at the end of time when God has to demonstrate his infinite power he will, he will allow evil to grow incredibly so you see and he will subdue and make many righteous people suffer but I want to tell you something even though it, in a certain sense you can say wait a minute if a righteous person suffers when he really shouldn't he doesn't deserve it you know it's not fair and the answer is something very interesting that a righteous person that suffers will be rewarded with an incomprehensible reward why because he will have contributed to God being able to display his awesome might that's the difference of course he has no choice he's going to suffer what can he do you see but don't think he will not be rewarded because that person by suffering as a righteous person enables God to display his might greater and that reward is much greater than what the person himself has done 
Maybe he did a lot of mitzvahs in his life. But God has now given another purpose. You need to be the person that's going to display my unbelievable might. Therefore, you're going to suffer. But for that, you will be rewarded in the future world and also in the Messianic era with an incomprehensible reward. So maybe you have to ask yourself, is it worth it? You know, is it worth it? The truth is, you don't have a choice. <laughs> you have no, it's not like you can pick and choose and say, well, God, are you on team A or team B? No, it doesn't work that way. God has his choice. He knows who has to suffer and who doesn't and so on. The key is to remember that evil will prosper enormously. We will see things that we don't believe. Why? Because God himself has to come into the game of what? Of displaying who he is. That's really what he does. Except it requires two things, like I said. The evil prospers is one, and that the good suffer. And some people suffer terribly, really terribly. And we don't, and so for many times, this is the, the answer, is if a person says to himself, I don't understand what's going on here. I mean, I, I'm not a bad person. I mean, we all sin, you know, we, you know, every once in a while, you know, we take a vacation from good, from mitzvahs, you know. Okay, fine, you know, but come on, 80 years of suffering is ridiculous. Oh, you see, and the answer is because, well, you've, you've now met a disadvantage. You are righteous, relatively righteous, and God has chosen you, right, to suffer. You are now going to be the individual that will be the conduit, the instrumentality, to enormously magnify his strength. It's a very important idea, you see. Now, we don't know who suffers and why. We don't know why, what, what's the criteria that God chooses. We don't know. That depends you on in the Shema, who you really are, or your Gilgulam, your incarnations. It's got so many factors in it we, don't, we, we can't possibly understand. Mm. But never fear. In the end of time, that individual will be, will be rewarded in an incomprehensible way. Far more than what they did. Why? Because they have been the vehicle for God to magnify His awesomeness. That's what it is. Now, okay, you can decide to complain and say, how do I get into this club here, you know, team, you know? But whatever it is, everything will be dealt in the end in an unbelievably fair way. And the reward of that is uh, just infinite, you know? <clears throat> you see that, and by the way, <clears throat> That's called Yisun Shalahavo. It is called suffering of love. In fact, the Gemara brings an incident where somebody was suffering, Rabbi uh, whatever, Eloz, I think, and the Rabbi Yochanan, he was suffering. So he was, he was a, a, an, an Amoira. So Rabbi Yochanan, the great Rabbi Yochanan, said to him, you know, do you want this suffering? So the, the other person said, I think it was Rabbi Yezza, whatever he said, I don't want them and I don't want their reward. So the Christian, what do you mean I don't want them, the reward? Suffering comes because of sin. It's a kapora, it's an atonement. So what's the reward? Because he knew he was suffering for that purpose. You see, to elevate the evil and therefore the good. So he was, he was one of the guys picked to suffer. You see, that was called, and so Rabbi Yechelen said to him, he was lucky to speak to Rabbi Yechelen. So he said, I don't want them and the reward. So Rabbi Yechelen immediately cured him. Gone. 
was the the difficulties that he had. And look, that when you know that's Rabbi Yochanan, you know, uh, and he was able to choose, you know. But ultimately, that's called Yisuin Shel Avo. It's suffering out of love, because they enable God to magnify His oneness. Very important idea, and that explains why, as they say, Tzadik Viraloi, the righteous person, has to suffer through tremendous bad, and rush of a and an evil man prospers. And this is one of the important ideas. It is especially important at the end of time. Because since we are approaching the end, God says the Jewish people are not magnifying me. Because unfortunately, they are assimilated, they are intermarried, they are unaffiliated. I mean, it's a churban out there and so on, you know. Uh, therefore, I have to do it myself. And that's what God does. You see, so that's another very, very important reason why people suffer. And, and nobody knows why. What you have to say to yourself is that, <clears throat> I'm suffering, I don't know why. I don't deserve this type of suffering, or the length of time, or the severity of the suffering. So you have to believe that in some way, you know, either it's an atonement, that's one reason, or you are in the service of elevating God's oneness, you know, of which the reward is infinite at the time of Mashiach. That's really what it is. You see, so, so far we have two reasons why evil predominates at the end of time. You see, either it's because the Jews are not ready, really, so God's got to get them up to speed, as they say, to accelerate the process. And as I've indicated, the Holocaust was the identical device that God used which is equivalent to the straw business of uh, then, except then they didn't need so much, you know, because uh, even in Egypt, there were uh, slaves to Egypt, you know. Uh, but today we need obviously much more, unfortunately, because we got 5,000 years of sins to overcome and to make up. So the Holocaust was obviously much greater than the straw business in, in Egypt and so on. And the second thing which I've said, which is very important, is the whole concept of God now has to magnify evil, you see? So when he destroys evil, then the world will be stunned because they, they have never seen such an infinite power, you see? So those in many ways are two very important reasons why evil proliferates at the end. Okay, where do we come with this, right? <clears throat> We don't understand in many ways what goes on. There's tremendous amount of evil, you know, immorality and so on, you know. Uh, but in the end, all of this will be explained. The Mashiach will come and he will explain every person, why every person had to suffer for whatever happened to him, whatever his life is about and so on. And in the end, it will happen. I, I can't go into it because it's already late, but you are witnessing now the beginning of what's called comeuppance. You don't realize that. Each thing that is happening is the beginning of the retribution that God is meeting out to the nations. Whether it be, uh, which I will explain in two weeks, whether it be Brexit, whether it be Iran, whether it be China, you see, even in Israel, the elections, which is a fiasco, obviously what's happening here and so on. Uh, whether it be Trump, right? Whether it be the peace plan, I will talk about all of this in two weeks, because that's the sheer I've designated for current events. 
and whatever else happens in the two weeks at, at this rate, you know, uh, you know, and so on. And, but anyway, <coughs> uh, all of this is all part of this unbelievable plan. Our problem is we don't see because they're just individual pieces. You see, it's like a chess game. All you see is a pawn move, a castle, a knight, but you don't see the strategy. And all of a sudden, they converge, and there it is, checkmate. You see, that's what's happening. You see, it all makes sense according to an unbelievable plan. So, we have to be talking like Avram Avinu. Just remember, the night they took Sarah, and Avram Avinu was in Motel 6, right? And could you imagine what he felt, you see? And he had to muster up whatever he could about the incredible Bitochen. And he had to say to himself, which he probably did say to himself, I have no idea what in the world is going on here. I mean, I've never seen something like this. Where I get promised by God himself that it's, that it's going to be glorious. And right now I find myself in the worst possible situation, you know, that I can imagine. He had to do it. He had to have to be talking. And that was a lesson. This is what a Jew has to have. You need to believe that God is behind everything. There's no such thing as chance. And in the end, it's going to do you good. It's going to rectify you. And hopefully it's going to bring you infinite reward. Thank you. Any questions? Okay. Might be that... Uh, in the near future, hopefully, imminently, hopefully, that we could begin to, to express uh, the oneness and the, the supreme power of God when we have a chance to demand annexation for all the right reasons and begin to speak about why, why we reject all these other things we have. You know, we annexed because Hashem gave it to us. That this might be an opportunity to, how else can we do it at this point? If not through making demands as a nation here in Eretz Israel. Well, you're looking at a national idea. I'm, I'm focusing on the individual. Uh, no, on a national, it's a different type of idea. Any other questions? Yes? Um, what about all the Torah learning in Eretz Israel in America, Lakewood Yeshiva? You didn't mention all the the good things the Jews are doing. All the thousands of people at the Mir. Go ahead. The, the Jews are also doing plenty. Built so many yeshivas. You don't see anything like that anywhere in the world. They have <coughs> Torah learning all over <coughs> the Jewish world. And therefore, we are doing a lot. Remember what I said. We have no idea of what the metric of God is, right? We don't, you know, metric is the measurement. We don't know, but remember one thing. God doesn't look only at one generation. He looks 5,000 years of history. And you can have a soul that comes back and forth, back and forth for thousands of years. And he's got to take that neshama and make him ready and right for the future world. You see? So it could be that Right now, it, of course it is. There's a tremendous amount of learning going on and so on. But remember, we're not here the first time. You could have been here 400 times. You would ne you'd never know it. So the Rosh has to take care of you. He has to fix anything that you did wrong. Because when the Mashiach comes, it has to be perfect. We will not get a Messianic era until the Tikkun, it's called the Tikkun HaKloli, 
the total rectification must be done when he comes. So God knows the nuance of every single thing that each neshama has ever done, you see? And he arranges that, you see? So you're looking at this generation, that's fine, but that's not God's view. That's not what God's job is. In Oilam Habo, every Jewish neshama, also many goyim in Oilam Habo. That's really what it is. You see, you have the perspective of now. God has the perspective from the beginning of time. And it's a whole different perspective that demands an entirely different strategy. But I agree with you. There's great stuff going on. They just had Daf Yoimi, 90,000, and then there's Dirshu. It's unbelievable. I'll tell you one interesting thing. If you want to hear something, since you, you've motivated me just to say one current events. Okay? Um, on Wednesday, January 1st, uh, they made the uh, 90,000 people in, in, uh, in the Daf the, Yoimi. The, the right? <clears throat> right? On January 2nd, Suleimani was killed. Interesting. Is that, a, is that coincidence? Right. Let me point out something. On January 1st, what did they finish? The Bavli. The Bavli is Iraq. Yes? Isn't that? Talmud Bavli was written in Iraq. Yes? Right. And who was killed the next day? Soleimani in Iraq. Maybe one Xera of one, the merit of the Jews here killed the greatest terrorist in the world in Iraq. Interesting. Maybe. You know, God has a, he's got his hand, as they say, on the pulse of everything. But I, I, I personally would feel that the Dafyomi on Wednesday killed Soleimani. And Soleimani wasn't just a terrorist. He was the greatest terrorist and one of the greatest enemies Israel has ever seen. The amount of deaths he's caused and what his future would have beheld. This guy was a madman, you see? And he's killed the next day after the celebration of the Bavli, which was written in Iraq. Interesting, isn't it? And, and the Democrats were all upset. Well, we know why. Any other question? Yeah. Right. We're talking about the increasing of suffering for the Jews. Of yes, all the necessities, yeah. So how do you reconcile that in Israel, Israel is ascendant in terms of economic powers and there is a, in a way the eighth strongest economy in the world. How do yeah. you reconcile this with the Shefa that we're experiencing? The high tech, the economic power? Because both of them happen simultaneously. It's not that there's all evil all the time. And it's not that all, all good people suffer. No. There are many good people that don't suffer. You see? We don't know why God chose this guy for team A and that guy for team B. <clears throat> what is important is the concept, which uh, you're mentioning, is the concept of the overall strategy. You see? That proceeds. On an individual level, you've got different guys going through different types of nisyonis and ganims and all that, you know? But one thing we clearly see, which is clearly an indication of the redemption, imminently, is the rise of Israel amongst the nations of the world. You see, in fact, what I'm going to say, one of the things I'm going to give, speak about two weeks from now, 
is why do you think all these guys, 40 dignitaries, princes, kings, why they come to Israel? There's reasons for that, but I'll, I'll, I'll tell you one, one, you know, because this is a forerunner of what will happen in the Messianic era, and it's not going to be 40 dignitaries, the entire world leaders are going to run to Israel and bow down to the Mashiach. You are looking at the forerunner. See, Vanishan wants to introduce you, you see, of what's going to happen in the end of time. You know, I mean, it was incredible. 40 uh, more, yet, yeah, more than 40, you know, you had princes, you had kings, you had prime ministers, you had presidents. It was like a who's who, you know, in the top echelon of the world. Why? Because the Vanishan says, get ready for this. But it's not just going to be these guys. It's going to tell you the entire planet will run to recognize the Jews and the Melech HaMashiach. That's a freebie. That's what's called a trailer. <laughs> now I'm going to talk more about that because there's much more that I want to say about the Holocaust business. Yeah? Um, it's just, I'm just wondering if we have to be afraid that now we're going to end up with the government with the blue and white <coughs> In the state no. I will talk about what I think is going to happen two weeks from now. What? We won't end up with that. Yes. Listen, the topic tonight was this, and uh, you know, current events is in two weeks. And I'm going to go through all this Brexit, China, Iran. You know, uh, uh, Israel, impeachment, the peace plan. I'm going to try to cover it all. What, what I think is the panemius of all of this and how each one is an event that is ushering in the Messianic era. Be, uh, you, it's, it's an incredible thing to see. What was that? Oh yeah, I'm going to talk about the coronavirus. Yes, sure. How can I leave out the coronavirus? <laughs> I mean, you know, I think China would be very angry if, I didn't, if they didn't have an explanation of what's going on here. I mean, they're being slaughtered. They can't believe what's going on there. You know, they are, they are really in a sakona. If that coronavirus continues another couple of months, they're finished. There's no trade. The economy's finished. Sure, the economy's finished. Nobody's coming out. There's no trade, no planes. Nothing is happening in China, you know. So I will try to uh, talk about that in two weeks, you know? Yeah? First of all, thank you so much. You bring such insight. Thank you, Shane. And we all do. And second, it's not so much a question as I was looking for a bit of a tie together. A what? Like a tie together, and you can't even start out with the suit to Genesis. I can't hear you, what? Yeah, yeah, I started off with that because the second possibility is revealing the darkness. Yeah. So, does that somehow also reveal? I don't even know how to phrase the question. How does that? How does that tie together or support their idea of what you're saying that? Well, the, the theme of the title of the shir is, you know, why does evil persist? Especially as we get closer to the end. Why does it get worse, darker, and so on? You know, that's, that was the title, and therefore I started off with the second Pasuk in Bracious that actually prophecies 
that this is what's going to happen. See? That's why I stopped. Sure. It wasn't just physical. It wasn't what? It's not just physical. No. No, of course not. <clears throat> yeah. It's a lot of, uh, a lot of very famous psukim. You know, to show you, one of the famous psukim is where it says, and there will be a great hunger in the land on that day. It's not a hunger for food. It's not a thirst for drink. But the hunger is to search for the, for the, uh, the wisdom of God. So what does that mean? That's evil. That means evil will proliferate so great that you're going to have to search far and wide to look and find spirituality. That's the darkness. See? It's the opposite end of it, you know? But it all talks about darkness. And what I try to explain is why. What does it mean and so on. You know? Anybody else? Wow. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for coming.